We proceed in our series this evening into the seventh chapter of Daniel. So if you turn there with me and we will uh, read for the best part the most of the chapter together. Daniel chapter 7. It may do you well um, if you haven't already. Uh, I know some of you will have. But if you haven't already, it may do, do well to um, read ahead um, in your daily readings over the next couple of chapters, just so that as you come to the different meetings we'll be doing on the remainder of Daniel, that you, you kind of you know where things are headed. But we won't read the rest of Daniel. We'll just read chapter 7. Verse 1, in the first year... Actually, we'll go back one verse, uh, to chapter 6, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the some of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, over howled till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I beheld and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw a, in the night visions, uh, I, after this, in the night visions, I, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I beheld, till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousands, times ten thousands before him. Judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed." I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me known the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, 
are four kings which shall arise out of earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and so on and so forth. Verse 28. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand unto a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And just trust that God will help us as we consider uh, this uh, vision of Daniel here. Now what we'll do this evening is just try and make a high-level pass over chapter 7. And along the way, we will try and pick up some tools and some apparatus which will um, help us... Thank you, Phil which will help us uh, not only understand the vision which we have in in chapter 7, but will help us understand some of the visions that come uh, hereafter. Um, There are four visions um, that we will be focusing on in the next few chapters. And so what does this tell us? Um, Well, it tells us that something has happened at the beginning of chapter 7 that's very, very significant. The reason I read the end of chapter 26, uh, chapter 6, verse 28, was that Daniel seems to have finished his book at that point. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He could have just left it there. But he's, if I could paraphrase verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, but that's not quite the whole story. Let me take you back a little bit. Because in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, I had some dreams and visions and I didn't tell you about those. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, Daniel's taking us back in time. And now we're not so much focused on Daniel's public ministry as his private visions. We're not so much focused on narrative, the stories of of, of Daniel's life, but the revelations that Daniel was given uh, private to him. So if you detected a, a significant change in the style of, of, and the content of, of chapter 7 to what we've experienced before, then it means you're awake and it means um, that you're, you're noticing that we are entering a new passage in the book of Daniel. Having said that, the themes don't really change. One structure that's been proposed for the book of Daniel is like this. Chapter 2 and chapter 7, they correspond with one another. And chapter 3 and chapter 6, they correspond with one another. And chapter 4 and chapter 5 correspond with one another as well. So there's a correspondence between some of the chapters. 
How do they correspond? Well, you remember in chapter 2, and as we've just read in chapter 7, God is revealing things. In chapters 3 and chapter 6, God is delivering people. And in chapters 4 and 5, God is humbling people. In chapter 2 and 7, God is revealing things through Daniel based on Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In chapter 7, God is revealing things to Daniel in Daniel's vision. In chapter 3 and chapter 6, God in 3 is delivering his, uh, Daniel's friends out of the fiery furnace. And in chapter 6, God is delivering Daniel out of the mouth of the lions. And then in chapters 4 and 5, God is humbling uh, two kings. Nebuchadnezzar is temporarily, temporarily relieved of his kingdom, isn't he? But then he ascends again. And Belshazzar, as our brother Dave uh, spoke to us on this, he is, um, he is relieved of his kingdom permanently. That's what happens when you get assassinated. So there seems to be a structure, and I know, I know various people have proposed uh, various structures, but what's interesting about this structure of 2 and 7, 3 and 6 and four, 5 and 4, 4 and 5, is that at the centre point of this structure, what is God doing? He's humbling. He's humbling kings. And he's bringing uh, men down. And so this really is the theme. These are some of the themes, aren't they, that we've been uncovering um, in previous weeks. That God is revealing. He's able to reveal things to us because God's vantage point is completely different to ours. He's able to deliver his godly saints from all the turmoil and the churn of, of nations that our brother Phil spoke to us about and that we've been touching on over the past weeks. And he's also able to humble these kings. What did uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar say at the end of chapter 4? Uh, read it. Um, he, he is able, for those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. So God is able. He is able to abase. Even if you're at the top of your game, God can bring you down. And depending on what you do when he brings you down, will depend on whether you stay down or whether he elevates you again to a, a position of responsibility. So the centre of this structure that we are building here, um, which I find very compelling, I think Dr David Gooding, or the, the late brother of Dr David Gooding, he, has a, a, he found this very compelling. He has his own structure, which some of you might have been looking at. But he does find this very compelling. And what it means is at the centre of things is that God is humbling men. But there's a change in chapter 7. There's a new, uh, a new revelation um, or an enhanced revelation. And it is this, that in the midst of all this churn and turmoil, ascension of kingdoms and uh, elevation of kingdoms and kingdoms brought down, it's not just that God is sovereign and like a stagehand, he's sort of moving things around sovereignly uh, in accordance with his will. What we see in chapter 7 is wonderful. This God who is the sovereign, who, who is working behind the scenes. We saw that in Esther, didn't we? But this God, he actually comes in to this churn. He comes into this turmoil in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he establishes his kingdom, which is everlasting. And that is why uh, when the Lord Jesus um, is in front of a human uh, judiciary uh, in Matthew's gospel uh, 
Matthew 26. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. When he is before a uh, human judiciary, he actually quotes from Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 64. Jesus said uh, unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. A direct quotation uh, from Daniel 7. The Lord Jesus is standing before the power and the might of his day. And, the, and, and, and if you like, the books are opened. But it turns out as those books are opened in front of Jesus Christ, that no witness can be found to find him guilty. And so the question goes out and the answer comes back from the Lord Jesus. There's going to come a day when the Son of Man will be where you're sitting and he will be the judge and your kingdom will be brought down and the books will be opened there and witnesses will be found as with Belshazzar. Witnesses will be found to the effect that your kingdom is, is your, your life and your kingdom is lacking, it is wanting. You've been weighed in the balances. And that is what we have in, in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. So a very different um, uh, or an enhanced revelation of the coming of this sovereign God who is working, yes, behind the scenes, but there's coming a day when he's about to, to, to break into this churn and, and, and this scene in which he has been working uh, behind the scenes in. He's going to break in. This sovereign God is going to enter in in the incarnate person of the Lord Jesus. So that is just by way of introduction. Uh, let's now look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 7. And as I said, we're going to do a high pass sort of over the chapter. And along the way, we're going to try and go down little rabbit holes that will um, hopefully give us some useful tools to be able to unpack the, the remaining chapters of this uh, book, which are all very much like this. They're all full of... Uh, uh, visions and, and things which uh, maybe at first are not quite as easy to unpick as the stories of Daniel and the Lion's Den, uh, which is something uh, you cover in Sunday school. You probably wouldn't cover Daniel 7 uh, in Sunday school. Well, you can always give it a go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head. Now let's just stop there. Paul did talk to us a little bit about that, uh, about visions in scripture. How do we, let's, let's, let's go down a little rabbit hole here about visions of scripture. How do we deal with uh, the Bible when it gets like this, when it's a little bit bizarre, it's all very graphic. Um, for some Christians, the whole, the, the whole kind of style of, of biblical revelation is off limits. They just don't, don't want to go there. And then there's other Christians who are very nerdy about it. They're like, oh, look what God's going to do. And I wonder if that, that leader over there in Middle East or that leader in America, I wonder if that's what that's referring to there. And so you have um, two, two extremes. One kind of Christian who, who gets sort of scared by all this and sort of runs away from it and won't touch it. And then the other Christian is just, that, that's all their palate will cope with from the Bible. They're very, very uh, buried in prophetic revelation. Now, I know that some of you have dreams that are weird and you think nothing of waking up in the morning and telling it uh, to uh, the first person you can speak to 
So dreams can be quite bizarre and they can be quite weird. Um, So perhaps this is no different to that. But more seriously, both in the Revelation, where we have this same, and Ezekiel, where we have the same kind of, uh, what we call genre, the the same type of content in the Bible. It's not stories now, it's, it's revelation, God uncovering something. Both Daniel and John in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, they, they do come away feeling exhausted. My, uh, my King James says in the last verse of chapter 28, my cogitations much troubled me. And, and John's the same. He, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. Isn't it good in a sense that God doesn't show us too much of what's coming in the future? Because we would be overwhelmed by it all. To see Abraham over here and to see David and to see Ezekiel and to see Paul and to see Lloyd and, and to see all of that in just, in just a tiny little space and then eternity is this big. It, it would just be overwhelming for us. But look at what, I'll read it to you, you don't need to turn there. Look at what uh, the Spirit of God says to Daniel in chapter 10. Um, uh, uh, as these visions unfold, he says, in verse 19, chapter 10, he says, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. So if it is that we are to approach these Um, passages of scripture which maybe fill us with fear it's the same kind of fear that we had when we got saved we saw a a righteous God standing over us with his wrath and we recognized that we were we 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 were entitled to be condemned from his presence forever and ever but what did we do did we run away from the revelation of scripture was that off-limits it is sadly, isn't it, for so many. But by the grace of God, what's happened in your experience and mine is as we see God revealing the horror of our sin, what do we do? We run towards him. We see his son at the cross of Calvary and rather than uh, fearing him and running away, we, we, we love him and we run towards him because he's the one that's come in and intervened in all this churn and he's going to set up his everlasting kingdom. So don't allow the, perhaps the tendencies of the flesh to, to make you frightened of these passages. They should make us be filled with awe, but it's the kind of awe that should draw us back to Calvary. It should draw us back uh, to uh, our conversion, and it should draw us to God, not cause us to be unhinged from him. Think of it another way. This is one of the little rabbit holes. I told you we're going to go down some rabbit holes this evening. It, it is strange that some passages are off limits. It, 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 do you think that that is of the spirit of God? When you feel like that about the word of God? I think when you think about it like that, the only conclusion is no, the spirit of God would have me enjoy all of the revelation. And the sad thing is, if you didn't read chapter 7 of Daniel because you got through the first verses and you ran scared away, you'd miss the later revelation of the Son of Man, which is the Lord Jesus coming into this scene. So 
So if there is an inclination in your heart to say, no, I don't like the book of Revelation. Um, I'm not going to read it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. You cannot but read it. And it is not to be filled with fear. Uh, but knowing these things, says Peter, what, what kind of people ought we to be? It's interesting, isn't it, in our modern world, that we've, in, we've invented things to improve our vantage point. So we can use flight to overcome the problem of our finite vision. Tonight we have finite vision. We just know what's going on inside these four walls. And if we were to walk out the front doors, we'd just see a few houses and some fireworks in the sky. Our vantage point is very narrow. But if you take a drone up into the sky, all of a sudden, the invention of flight means that you have a better vantage point. And although you're still human on a computer screen, you can see uh, all the fireworks across Berry, and possibly you know, to Thurston and, and up to Risby, and your vantage point is improved. Uh, we can use Google to overcome the problem of finite knowledge. If you know how to use Google properly, you just put your, your, your query in, a well-formed query, and suddenly the, the finite vantage point that you have of knowledge is suddenly expanded by the many billions and zillions of human minds that have, have documented things on the internet, and, and many who haven't but have had their works documented, and suddenly we find that we have not infinite knowledge, but we have an improved vantage point. Now, the amazing thing about our God is he's able to do that with time. He is literally able to see Adam down here and the very last man that's born over here, and he can see everything. He can just see the whole of time before him, just like we can with a drone in the sky or our search query in the cloud. God is able to go aloft of, of, of history itself and just see everything. Now, is that not another reason to dive into passages of Scripture like this and just marvel at the God with whom we have to do? And this is the God that, is, that loves you, and he loves me, and he died for us. How, how can that be possible for a God who has this kind of vantage point to deign to come into this world and to uh, bear sin on our Account. So visions in scripture, don't be put off by them. Be drawn to them and see Christ in them and the glory of God in them. Uh, because if you don't, you're missing out. And you, we know that deep down. But we sometimes buy into this strange idea that visions are off limits. Visions of his head upon his bed, verse 1. Then he wrote the dream and told us some of the matters. So Daniel's just giving us a digest, really. He, he's having this dream. He's not going to give us, you know, uh, a, a 50, 50 uh, volumes of, of, of what he saw. He's just giving us some of the matters. We don't have all the details here. And the fact is Daniel was struggling to put it down and describe it anyway. Verse 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw it in my vision by night. Now, I mentioned already that there are several visions this one is in the first year of Belshazzar. In chapter 8, there is one in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. In chapter 9, there's one in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. In chapter 10, there's one in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So some of these visions that Daniel's having, stuff has already happened, but some of these visions, the things that are being revealed to him, haven't already happened. 
So if you, if you feel overwhelmed as you read these visions, just imagine what it's like for Daniel. These, none of these had things that happened yet. And he's standing before Belshazzar, as Dave, my brother Dave pointed out a few weeks ago, and he's called to Belshazzar, and he's looking at the, the inscription on the wall, but he already knows, because this is the first year of Belshazzar, he already knows that Belshazzar is a goner. Now he kind of already knows that from Nebuchadnezzar's vision, but it's, it's more horrific here. And so he's standing before this, this, this plaster that's been scraped on the wall, and he's been asked for the interpretation. He knows what the interpretation is, because he knows uh, uh, about the downfall of the Babylonian kingdom. So it's even more overwhelming for Daniel. He looks and he sees four winds of the heaven striving upon the great sea. This is the first indication that what Daniel's going to see here is full of churn, it's full of unrest, it's full of, uh, of, of tension. <laughs> Very appropriate, isn't it? This world is just, is just that. And in our modern world, especially here in the West, we've done a great job at, at flattening out all the, the unrest of the sea. We have, you know, we have car insurance and we have, um, we have breakdown cover and we have painkillers. But really, really, if we were to wake up and to see, see this world through the eyes of eternity, we would realise that what we've done in our Western world and what God has blessed us to do, I'm not saying any of these things are wrong, is, is we're just really painting over the cracks of a world which has fallen and is, is, is reigned and ruled by ungodly men, for the most part. The unrest upon the great sea. And four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse one another they're very very different these beasts so let's take a look at these these animals now let me go down a quick rabbit hole uh, which is animals in scripture it's interesting the book of daniel is full of animals uh, obviously nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast in chapter four uh, daniel and the lion's den in chapter six we've got four beasts here in this version in this vision and in next week's uh, vision in chapter eight there are there are there's a ram and, and a goat so animals are, are used in scripture in a variety of different ways. We have to interpret them in the context that we find them in. But here in this context, these animals, uh, as, as Daniel is asleep and he sees these animals, they're, they're rather grotesque animals. They're, not, it's, they're like animals. We, we can't really imagine what they're like, but Daniel's best guess is that they're a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And he's doing his best to describe things but right back as far as Eden, animals are associated with a subhuman kind of form of, 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 of power and uh, of a grotesque nature. So it's the, it's the serpent that comes, probably a, a, a real serpent by all means. But then animals are, you have dragons and, and you have um, uh, animals often used to, to, to convey evil and of course, in our Western world, we can put animals, we have our domesticated animals, which are lovely, and we cuddle them, and we feed them, and we pet them. And we have animals behind glass windows, which means we can be in close proximity to animals, or we do when we're allowed to go to zoos anyway. So animals are kind of, and then we have stories like the Hundred Acre Wood and Christopher Robin, animals are just cuddly toys. So animals for us aren't really perceived quite the way they probably would in, in Daniel's day. Animals were alive and well in, in the land and you could come across lions and bears and 
they were dangerous animals. There weren't so many domesticated animals back then. So it's a very appropriate imagery that the Spirit of God inspires in Daniel's vision of these four kingdoms uh, that are evil, they're not cuddly at all, the metaphors for these ungodly kingdoms. And I've said about that. So four great beasts. The first, verse four, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Lion is the greatest animal of of the beasts, the king of the beasts, if you like, and the eagle is the king of, of the air. But notice this, this beast, he, uh, he's, he's actually, he has his, his feathers plucked off, um, the wings plucked off, so he's no longer like a, an, an eagle anymore, he's just like a lion, and then he's lifted up from the earth, so he's kind of elevated, and then he's made to stand upon the feet as a man. He's kind of given a kind of a man kind of human form. And a man's heart was given to it. Interesting. Uh, the next beast um, is like a bear. A little less elegant. Perhaps a little bit more lumping around. Uh, not as elegant as the, the eagle and the, the lion of the first beast. Um, it raises itself up, it tries to elevate itself, and it has three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth. It's a little bit grotesque, it's devouring much flesh. So what's the interpretation of this? Well, we read it, didn't we? Verse 17, Daniel's given the interpretation. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. So we have no doubt what the, the, these, these animals represent. They represent kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Now, do you remember an image in Daniel of four kings before. Yeah. Go back to chapter seven, and Ken did reference this when he was in chapter two. Sorry, go back to chapter two. Ken referenced this when he, when he was in chapter two. We have there a single image, but made of four different materials, uh, four primary materials anyway. You have the head of, head of gold, the silver, and then the brass, and then the iron. And so, uh, there is very good consensus that the four uh, kings here are corresponding with the four kings and kingdoms of the image in chapter 2. Now, why is that significant? And, and why is it that, that in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he sees this elegant image made up of these different materials, but in Daniel's vision, he sees grotesque animals? Well, perhaps we could say this, that in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he saw it from man's standpoint. Men in, in, their, in their glory and in their honour, although in decreasing glory and honour as you go down the image. Daniel said, you are that, that head of gold, didn't he? But what Daniel sees is he sees them as God sees them. He sees them as ungodly kingdoms amongst the churning sea. And, and there is a, a degree of uh, grotesqueness about them. So much so that when you get to the third beast, you have, a, a, in verse 6, you have a leopard, which is the back of it, four wings of a fowl and four heads. It's becoming increasingly weird and obscure. And by the time Daniel gets to the fourth beast in verse 7, he just says, I behold a fourth beast. It's not like anything he's seen. He, he can't think of any, any animal that he's seen or any combination of animals that he's seen that this is like. He can't describe it. It's, it's beyond description. It's so hideous. A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong, 
It had iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It seems to be very violent. And he says, and it was diverse from all the beasts before it. So you have three beasts which he can kind of describe, and then you have a fourth beast which is altogether different. And did you notice as we read through that Daniel spends a lot of time trying to explain what he sees about this fourth beast? It's different because it seems to be able to give birth to more power. The lion and the eagle, the the head of gold, Babylon, as as we know it to be, it, it falls. The bear, the Medes and Persian Empire, it rises and it falls. The, 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 uh, the brass, which is the Grecian Empire, it rises and it falls. But this beast here, this fourth beast, it rises, it stamps around, it viciously devours all the power around it. And then it gives birth to these ten horns. And then another horn. And it's just, this beast just seems to be able to spawn, spawn vicious power at, at, its, at its will. It's different to the other beasts. It's not just rising and falling. It seems to be able to perpetuate itself. And however much it, things rise and fall, it seems to be able to spawn another powerful kingdom after kingdom. So Daniel sees these four beasts. And we see them as representing the, uh, the, the king Nebuchadnezzar, the kings of the Mede and Persians, uh, the kings of, of, Greek, of, of Greece, and then finally the kings of Rome, uh, which goes on, goes on until, until when, says Daniel, verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit. So this fourth beast, he goes on, raging and, and, and domineering the earth until, until the Ancient of Days did sit. The Ancient of Days is, is the sovereign God who we've been observing, raising up kingdoms, delivering his saints and humbling kings and kingdoms. And now this Ancient of Days, he sits. He sits on his throne. His garment, verse 9, was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. This is some throne. This is a throne to end all other thrones. And at the end of verse 10, the judgment was set. The books were opened. Where does this take you back to? It takes you back to Matthew, it takes you forward to Matthew 26. Where the Lord Jesus is standing before the books of of the powers of that world. And he's found guilty, but only because they wanted him to be guilty. He's not found guilty because of anything that he had done. And they caused him to be scourged and they nailed him to a cross. But here, 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 the Ancient of Days sits and the books were opened and Daniel uh, uh, observes God uh, sitting on his thrones. One other thing I just me- me- need to mention, because it will be useful as we go into chapter 8, you'll notice that in uh, respect of the third beast, in verse 6, it's a leopard and it has four wings and four heads. Now, we said this was grotesque, but it's interesting that the Greek empire, 
We've already looked at the Babylonian Empire. Daniel was contemporary with that. We've already looked at the Medo Persian Empire. Daniel was contemporary with that. But the Greek Empire was something that Daniel wasn't really going to see. Uh, but what Daniel is able to see is that the Greek Empire will have four, uh, four uh, elements of power that are seen in these four wings and these four heads. When Alexander the Great swept this, swept this, uh, this world with his power, he left four generals um, after he died. He left four generals to share the Middle East uh, and, the, and the areas of Europe that he had con- conquered and Africa and the whole region that he conquered. He left them to four generals. And as we move into chapter 8 next week, we shall see uh, that that vision of, of the uh, Greek Empire is expanded upon in the vision of chapter 8. So we've thought about the visions of Scripture and why we should go after them. We've thought about the animals in Scripture. Uh, we have two more little rabbit holes to look at, and that is, what do, what do these horns refer to? Verse 8, uh, sorry, the end of verse 7 um, it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So I've already mentioned that, uh, that the, these ten horns represent uh, ten kings. And uh, what we need to understand, the, the little piece of tool that we need as we go forward, because we'll have horns next week as well, is the horns represent uh, power. Horns represent power. I'm sure you've seen the, uh, you know, the David Attenborough uh, documentaries and you see animals and he speaks in his dulcet tones about a horrific battle going on and he makes it sound you know like it's something you could watch over Sunday dinner but there's these two animals going at it and often the battle is waged between the heads with horns and often it's the animal with the strongest horns the most the horns that can deal the biggest blow that is able to exert his dominance in the, in the, I was going to say the pride, but uh, in, in, the, in the community of animals where that, uh, that dominance is being, uh, is being uh, played out. And so horns in scripture, and again, this is something that, um, to me, not an animal lover, it's not something I really uh, ever think about. And so we read, the, we read about these horns in scripture and we think, well, that's a strange kind of picture, isn't it? Especially when you have 10 horns and it is grotesque. But it simply is speaking to us of the power of this fourth beast. It's not elegant, it's not majestic, it's just powerful. And when we look at the later visions uh, in future chapters, we will see that these kingdoms, uh, especially this one, is empowered by spiritual forces. There are battles going on in spiritual places. And we do well to, rem- to be reminded of that as we interact with the world around us and we skirt closely by what we read and by what we watch and what we listen to and what we speak about. We do well to remind ourselves that although protected because we have been extracted from the kingdom of darkness and now are in the kingdom of God, we do well to remind ourselves that there is power out there and it is dark And we need to stay safe. And we can do that by reading the word of God, spending time with the people of God and occupying ourselves 
with God himself. God is our refuge and strength. He is safe. And if we skirt next to God, then we can be, never be at the mercies of the power uh, that lies beneath, beneath the, the uh, dimensions that are simply not appreciated by us. So these horns, they differentiate this fourth beast from all the beasts before. And in verse 8, he considers the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn. It's a little horn. It's an insignificant, small little horn. But look what it does. He says that this horn is able to pluck three of the ten horns. He's able to pluck them up by the roots. By the roots, not just ha- hammering them down from the top. But he's able to pluck them up from the roots. A thing that is very improbable. Um, if you've ever tried to do that to a, a goat, uh, you you'd probably uh, wouldn't survive. He's able to pluck them up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes. This, this one seems to have insight and wisdom and knowledge. Eyes. Eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. Well, Daniel will go on to interpret uh, these things in verse 23. We've seen that the four, king, uh, the four beasts are pictures of four kingdoms in verse 17. Now let's look at the interpretation of the fourth beast. He says um, uh, in verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High. So this little horn, it seems to be insignificant, but it's going to rise out of nowhere and it's going it's to shut down the power of other kingdoms. He, he rises up and he speaks directly against God. He's not, he's not just now having, it's not just, you know, America having battles with, with, uh, uh, <laughs> with America. It's not, just, it's not just civil war. It's not international or world war. This is man against God. This is, this is heading up now to, to final times. Imagine Daniel is buried uh, in, in, in pre-Christ times and he's seeing this whole vision before him. No wonder he was overwhelmed. He sees this one speaking against the Most High. And what is he doing? He's wearing out the saints of the Most High as well. He's, he's, he's identifying those that believe in God. And he's subjecting them and he's persecuting them. And look, he, he thinks to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand. He's able, to, he's able just to do whatever he wants, make whatever laws he wants. He's able to have power to, to, to change uh, almost civilization's existence. But verse 26, the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion. And we'll leave it there. Let me just close by uh, one final rabbit hole, and that is kingdoms in scripture. K- kingdoms were accumulation of, of at least three things, material things, so the more territory you had, the bigger your kingdom was. Power, the more power you had, the bigger your kingdom was. And religion. It, it's very easy to read the book of Daniel and look out at the world out there and say, well, that world is going to a lost eternity. But by the grace of God, we're going we're gonna to enjoy the intervention of God on this earth. And he's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. And as it says at the end of Daniel 7, we are going to reign 
with him. But let me talk to you now about the kingdom in my heart and the kingdom in your heart. Because if we learn anything from Daniel, we learn that God likes to bring people down when they, when they are, are building their own little kingdoms. He just sees them as little kingdoms. He sits in the heavens and laughs. What, what kingdoms are you building? We accumulate material things, don't we? And we often think that they will make us happy because we're, we're accumulating material things. And we were like, we're like Nebuchadnezzar. We, 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 we say to ourselves, look, look what I have made, look what I have done. Little kingdoms in our heart. And if our prayer life suffers, if our study of God's word suffers, if maybe we can't, uh, because of the way we've organised our lives around material things, we can't, we can't be there where God wants us to be, well, we just, we sell those to ourselves as sacrifices that are necessary in order that we might build our little kingdom. But not only material things, kingdoms are characterised by power. And if you don't believe that you have power, then you perhaps don't estimate really correctly that, that you do have power. The fact that you can go to your tap in your kitchen and just spin uh, a screw and water comes out means that you've got power. You've got that independence in your house to just have water whenever you want it, whenever you like it. Not everyone has that power. We live in a world where there are human rights, as we call them. And if you go, you look out on the streets of Bury, there are a couple of rough sleepers out there and they have no power. They have to beg for food. Independence is power. And when you look at, you know, poverty-stricken countries, uh, some places in Africa, for example, you realise actually you have power, but we don't like it. We don't like it. I don't like it when power is taken away. When we have our autonomy taken away from us, it's then we realise that we do have a little kingdom inside us and it wants to be able to do what it wants to be able to do and it doesn't like it when it can't do what it's told. It starts with a two-letter word when you're about two years old, N-O. And as we get older, we grow and the kingdom in our little heart, it becomes more and more clever at convincing us that we're trying to serve God, but we'd like to have this kingdom as well. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking at you. I'm talking, we're talking about this together. These are things that I struggle to with as well. It hurts us, doesn't it? When God humbles us and he brings us low. But may we be like Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. May we be like Nebuchadnezzar. But finally, religion. The first century's religion is out there in all sorts of different places. It's down there on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, people have always liked a following. It's great for the eager. The religious figures of yesterday, the, the, the rabbis and the, the, the religious heroes have been placed, replaced by celebrities. And they, they have it all, we think. And we aspire for their fairy tale kind of lifestyle. And we hope that people look at us and they think that we're wonderful and they will follow us as well. And we build these kingdoms in our hearts. And it hurts when people don't like us <laughs> and they don't follow us and they don't yield to us when they won't do what we want them to do. And we have this kind of idolatrous religion within our heart. It's there in the flesh. 
These are the kingdoms we have in our heart. Now, if I'm wrong, if you, if you don't struggle with these things, then you're, you can consider yourself very blessed. But I think for the most part, we do struggle with these things. Materialism, the, the independence that we want in our lives to do what we want to do, and the desire for some sort of following. God raises up kingdoms and he brings down kingdoms. And if it is that God raises us up, may we never be proud about that. And if God humbles us, may we, we seek his grace and mercy. Just remember as we read Daniel, what God is doing with those kingdoms out there. He's doing in our hearts too. And he wants us to be humbled. And he wants us to be drawn to him in worship. And remember that the only kingdom that should ever be in existence is his kingdom. And that means our kingdoms have to go. Should we just close with a short word of prayer?